BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Book 3, Chapter 11 of War and Peace, Volume 1 by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Eleven. The next day, the Emperor stopped at Vichau, and Villiers, his physician, was repeatedly summoned to see him. At headquarters and among the troops nearby, the news spread that the Emperor was unwell. He ate nothing and had slept badly that night, those around him reported. The cause of this indisposition was the strong impression made on his sensitive mind by the sight of the killed and wounded. At daybreak on the 17th, a French officer who had come with a flag of truce, demanding an audience with the Russian Emperor, was brought into Vichau from our outposts. This officer was Savary. The Emperor had only just fallen asleep, and so Savary had to wait. At midday he was admitted to the Emperor, and an hour later he rode off with Prince Dolgorukov to the advanced post of the French army. It was rumored that Savary had been sent to propose to Alexander a meeting with Napoleon. To the joy and pride of the whole army, a personal interview was refused, and instead of the sovereign, Prince Dolgorukov, the victor at Vichau, was sent with Savary to negotiate with Napoleon, if, contrary to expectations, these negotiations were actuated by a real desire for peace. Toward evening Dolgorukov came back, went straight to the Tsar, and remained alone with him for a long time. On the 18th and 19th of November the army advanced two days' march and the enemy's outpost, after a brief interchange of shots, retreated. In the highest army circles from midday on the 19th, a great, excitedly bustling activity began which lasted till the morning of the 20th, when the memorable Battle of Austerlitz was fought. Till midday on the 19th, the activity, the eager talk, running to and fro and dispatching of adjutants, was confined to the Emperor's headquarters. But on the afternoon of that day, this activity reached Kutuzov's headquarters and the staffs of the commanders of columns. By evening, the adjutants had spread it to all ends and parts of the army, and in the night from the 19th to the 20th the whole 80,000 Allied troops rose from their bivouacs to the hum of voices, and the army swayed and started in one enormous mass six miles long. The concentrated activity which had begun at the Emperor's headquarters in the morning, and had started the whole movement that followed, was like the first movement of the main wheel of a large tower clock. One wheel slowly moved another was set in motion, and a third and wheels began to revolve faster and faster, 
levers and cogwheels to work, chimes to play, figures to pop out, and the hands to advance with regular motion as a result of all that activity. Just as in the mechanism of a clock, so in the mechanism of the military machine, an impulse once given leads to the final result. And just as indifferently quiescent till the moment when motion is transmitted to them are the parts of the mechanism which the impulse has not yet reached. Wheels creak on their axles as the cogs engage one another and the revolving pulleys whir with the rapidity of their movement. But a neighboring wheel is as quiet and motionless as though it were prepared to remain so for a hundred years. But the moment comes when the lever catches it, and obeying the impulse, that wheel begins to creak and joins in the common motion, the result and aim of which are beyond its ken. Just as in a clock, the result of the complicated motion of innumerable wheels and pulleys is merely a slow and regular movement of the hands which show the time, so the result of all the complicated human activities of a hundred and sixty thousand Russians and French, all their passions, desires, remorse, humiliations, sufferings, outbursts of pride, fear, and enthusiasm, was only the loss of the Battle of Austerlitz, the so-called Battle of the Three Emperors, that is to say, a slow movement of the hand on the dial of human history. Prince Andrew was on duty that day, and in constant attendance on the Commander-in-Chief. At six in the evening Kutuzov went to the Emperor's headquarters, and after staying but a short time with the Tsar went to see the Grand Marshal of the Court, Count Tolstoy. Bolkonsky took the opportunity to go in to get some details of the coming action from Dolgorukov. He felt that Kutuzov was upset and dissatisfied about something, and that at headquarters they were dissatisfied with him, and also that at the Emperor's headquarters everyone adopted toward him the tone of men who know something others do not. He therefore wished to speak to Dolgorukov. "'Well, how do you do, my dear fellow?' said Dolgorukov, who was sitting at tea with Belieben. "'The Fed is for tomorrow. How is your old fellow? Out of sorts?' "'I won't say he is out of sorts, but I fancy he would like to be heard.' "'But they heard him at the Council of War, and will hear him when he talks sense. But to temporize and wait for something now, when Bonaparte fears nothing so much as a general battle, is impossible.' "'Yes, you have seen him?' said Prince Andrew. "'Well, what is Bonaparte like? How did he impress you?' "'Yes, I saw him, and am convinced that he fears nothing so much as a general engagement,' repeated Dolgorukov, evidently prizing this general conclusion which he had arrived at from his interview with Napoleon. "'If he weren't afraid of a battle, why did he ask for that interview? Why negotiate, and above all, why retreat, when to retreat is so contrary to his method of conducting war. Believe me, he is afraid, afraid of a general battle. His hour has come, mark my words." "'But tell me, what is he like, eh?' said Prince Andrew again. "'He is a man in a grey overcoat, very anxious that I should call him Your Majesty, but who, to his chagrin, got no title from me.' That's the sort of man he is, and nothing more," replied Dolgorukov, looking round at Belieben with a smile. "'Despite my great respect for old Kutuzov,' he continued, "'we should be a nice set of fellows if we were to wait about and so give him a chance to escape, or to trick us, now that we certainly have him in our hands. No, 
we mustn't forget Suvorov and his rule, not to put yourself in a position to be attacked, but yourself to attack. Believe me, in war the energy of young men often shows the way better than all the experience of old cunctators. But in what position are we going to attack him? I have been at the outpost today, and it is impossible to say where his chief forces are situated," said Prince Andrew. He wished to explain to Dolgorukov a plan of attack he had himself formed. "'Oh, that is all the same,' Dolgorukov said quickly, and getting up he spread a map on the table. All eventualities have been foreseen. If he is standing before Brun, and Prince Dolgorukov rapidly but indistinctly explained Weyrotter's plan of a flanking movement. Prince Andrew began to reply and to state his own plan, which might have been as good as Weyrotter's, but for the disadvantage that Weyrotter's had already been approved. As soon as Prince Andrew began to demonstrate the defects of the latter and the merits of his own plan, Prince Dolgorukov ceased to listen to him and gazed absent-mindedly not at the map but at Prince Andrew's face. There will be a council of war at Kutuzov's tonight, though. You can say all this there," remarked Dolgorukov. "'I will do so,' said Prince Andrew, moving away from the map. "'Whatever are you bothering about, gentlemen?' said Belieben, who till then had listened with an amused smile to their conversation, and now was evidently ready with a joke. "'Whether tomorrow brings victory or defeat, the glory of our Russian arms is secure.' except your Kutuzov, there is not a single Russian in command of a column. The commanders are Herr General Wimpfen, Le Count de la Gironne, Le Prince de Liechtenstein, Le Prince de Hohenlohe, and finally Prish Prish, and so on like all those Polish names." "'Be quiet, backbiter,' said Dolgorukov. "'It is not true. There are now two Russians, Milodorovich and Dokturov, and there would be a third, Count Erekcheyev, if his nerves were not too weak. However, I think General Kutuzov has come out," said Prince Andrew. "'I wish you good luck and success, gentlemen,' he added, and went out after shaking hands with Dolgorukov and Belieben. On the way home, Prince Andrew could not refrain from asking Kutuzov, who was sitting silently beside him, what he thought of tomorrow's battle. Kutuzov looked sternly at his adjutant, and after a pause replied, "'I think the battle will be lost.' and so I told Count Tolstoy and asked him to tell the Emperor. What do you think he replied? But, my general, I am engaged with rice and cutlets. Look after military matters yourself." Yes, that was the answer I got. End of Book Three, Chapter Eleven Book Three, Chapter Twelve of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Twelve. Shortly after nine o'clock that evening, Weyroder drove with his plans to Kutuzov's quarters, where the council of war was to be held. All the commanders of columns were summoned to the commander-in-chiefs, and with the exception of Prince Bagradian, who declined to come were all there at the appointed time. Weyroder, who was in full control of the proposed battle, by his eagerness and briskness presented a marked contrast to the dissatisfied and drowsy Kutuzov, who reluctantly played the part of chairman and president of the Council of War. 
Feyroder evidently felt himself to be at the head of a movement that had already become unrestrainable. He was like a horse running downhill harnessed to a heavy cart. Whether he was pulling it or being pushed by it he did not know, but rushed along at headlong speed with no time to consider what his movement might lead to. Veyroder had been twice that evening to the enemy's picket line to reconnoiter personally, and twice to the Emperor's, Russian and Austrian, to report and explain, and to his headquarters where he had dictated the dispositions in German, and now, much exhausted, he arrived at Kutuzov's. He was evidently so busy that he even forgot to be polite to the commander-in-chief. He interrupted him, talked rapidly and indistinctly, without looking at the man he was addressing, and did not reply to questions put to him. He was bespattered with mud and had a pitiful, weary, and distracted air, though at the same time he was haughty and self-confident. Kutuzov was occupying a nobleman's castle of modest dimensions near Austerlitz. In the large drawing-room which had become the commander-in-chief's office were gathered Kutuzov himself, Veyroder, and the members of the Council of War. They were drinking tea, and only awaited Prince Bagradian to begin the council. At last Bagradian's orderly came with the news that the prince could not attend. Prince Andrew came in to inform the commander-in-chief of this, and availing himself of permission previously given him by Kutuzov to be present at the council, he remained in the room. "'Since Prince Bagradian is not coming, we may begin,' said Veyroder, hurriedly rising from his seat, and going up to the table, on which an enormous map of the environs of Brune was spread out. Kutuzov, with his uniform unbuttoned so that his fat neck bulged over his collar as if escaping, was sitting almost asleep in a low chair, with his podgy old hands resting symmetrically on its arms. At the sound of Veyroder's voice he opened his one eye with an effort. "'Yes, yes, if you please. It is already late,' said he, and nodding his head he let it droop and again closed his eye. If at first the members of the council thought that Kutuzov was pretending to sleep, the sounds his nose emitted during the reading that followed proved that the commander-in-chief at that moment was absorbed by a far more serious matter than a desire to show his contempt for the dispositions or anything else. He was engaged in satisfying the irresistible human need for sleep. He really was asleep. Veyroder, with the gesture of a man too busy to lose a moment, glanced at Kutuzov, and, having convinced himself that he was asleep, took up a paper and, in a loud, monotonous voice, began to read out the dispositions for the impending battle, under a heading which he also read out. Dispositions for an attack on the enemy position behind Kobelnitz and Sokolnitz, November 30, 1805. The dispositions were very complicated and difficult. They began as follows. As the enemy's left wing rests on wooded hills and his right extends along Kobelnitz and Sokolnitz beyond the ponds that are there, while we, on the other hand, with our left wing by far outflank his right, it is advantageous to attack the enemy's latter wing, especially if we occupy the villages of Sokolnitz and Kobelnitz, whereby we can both fall on his flank and pursue him over the plain between Schlappenitz and the Terrassa forest, avoiding the defiles of Schlappenitz and Belovitz which cover the enemy's front. For this object it is necessary that the first column marches, the second column marches, the third column marches, and so on, read Veyroder. The generals seemed to listen reluctantly to the difficult dispositions. 
The tall, fair-haired General Buxhuden stood, leaning his back against the wall, his eyes fixed on a burning candle, and seemed not to listen or even to wish to be thought to listen. Exactly opposite Vayroder, with his glistening, wide-open eyes fixed upon him and his mustache twisted upwards, sat the ruddy Miloradovich, in a military pose, his elbows turned outwards, his hands on his knees, and his shoulders raised. He remained stubbornly silent, gazing at Vayroder's face, and only turned away his eyes when the Austrian chief of staff finished reading. Then Miloradovich looked round significantly at the other generals, but one could not tell from that significant look whether he agreed or disagreed and was satisfied or not with the arrangements. Next to Vayroder sat Count Lajeron, who, with a subtle smile that never left his typically southern French face during the whole time of the reading, gazed at his delicate fingers, which rapidly twirled by its corners a gold snuff-box on which was a portrait. In the middle of one of the longest sentences he stopped the rotary motion of the snuff-box, raised his head, and with inimical politeness lurking in the corners of his thin lips interrupted Vayroder, wishing to say something. But the Austrian general, continuing to read, frowned angrily and jerked his elbows, as if to say, "'You can tell me your views later, but now be so good as to look at the map and listen.' Lajeron lifted his eyes with an expression of perplexity, turned round to Miloradovich as if seeking an explanation, but meeting the latter's impressive but meaningless gaze, drooped his eyes sadly and again took to twirling his snuff-box. "'A geography lesson,' he muttered as if to himself, but loud enough to be heard. Prebozhewski, with respectful but dignified politeness, held his hand to his ear toward Vayroder, with the air of a man absorbed in attention. Dokturov, a little man, sat opposite Vayroder, with an assiduous and modest mien, and stooping over the outspread map, conscientiously studied the dispositions and the unfamiliar locality. He asked Vayroder several times to repeat words he had not clearly heard, and the difficult names of villages. Vayroder complied, and Dokturov noted them down. When the reading which lasted more than an hour was over, Lajeron again brought his snuff-box to rest, and without looking at Vayroder or at any one in particular, began to say how difficult it was to carry out such a plan in which the enemy's position was assumed to be known, whereas it was perhaps not known, since the enemy was in movement. Langeron's objections were valid, but it was obvious that their chief aim was to show General Vayroder, who had read his dispositions with as much self-confidence as if he were addressing schoolchildren, that he had to do, not with fools, but with men who could teach him something in military matters. When the monotonous sound of Vayroder's voice ceased, Kutuzov opened his eyes, as a miller wakes up when the soporific drone of the mill-wheel is interrupted. He listened to what Lajeron said, as if remarking, "'So you are still at that silly business,' quickly closed his eye again and let his head sink still lower. Lajeron, trying as virulently as possible to sting Vayroder's vanity as author of the military plan, argued that Bonaparte might easily attack instead of being attacked, and so render the whole of this plan perfectly worthless. Vayroder met all objections with a firm and contemptuous smile, evidently prepared beforehand to meet all objections, be they what they might. "'If he could attack us, he would have done so to-day,' said he. "'So you think he is powerless?' said Langeron. 
He has forty thousand men at most," replied Vayroder, with the smile of a doctor to whom an old wife wishes to explain the treatment of a case. "'In that case, he is inviting his doom by awaiting our attack,' said Langeron, with a subtly ironical smile, again glancing round for support to Milorodovitch who was near him. But Milorodovitch was at that moment evidently thinking of anything rather than of what the generals were disputing about. "'Ma foi,' said he, "'tomorrow we shall see all that on the battlefield.' Vayroder again gave that smile which seemed to say that, to him, it was strange and ridiculous to meet objections from Russian generals, and to have to prove to them what he had not merely convinced himself of, but had also convinced the sovereign emperors of. "'The enemy has quenched his fires, and a continual noise is heard from his camp,' said he. "'What does that mean?' Either he is retreating, which is the only thing we need fear, or he is changing his position." He smiled ironically. "'But even if he also took up a position in the terrassa, he merely saves us a great deal of trouble, and all our arrangements to the minutest detail remain the same.' "'How is that?' began Prince Andrew, who had for long been waiting an opportunity to express his doubts. Kutuzov here woke up coughed heavily and looked round at the generals. "'Gentlemen, the dispositions for tomorrow, or rather for today, for it is past midnight, cannot now be altered,' said he. "'You have heard them, and we shall all do our duty. But before a battle there is nothing more important,' he paused, "'than to have a good sleep.' He moved as if to rise. The generals bowed and retired. It was past midnight. Prince Andrew went out. The Council of War, at which Prince Andrew had not been able to express his opinion as he had hoped to, left on him a vague and uneasy impression. Whether Dolgorukov and Vayroder, or Kutuzov, Langeron, and the others who did not approve of the plan of attack were right, he did not know. But was it really not possible for Kutuzov to state his views plainly to the Emperor? Is it possible that on account of court and personal considerations, tens of thousands of lives, and my life, my life, he thought, must be risked? Yes, it is very likely that I shall be killed tomorrow, he thought. And suddenly, at this thought of death, a whole series of most distant, most intimate memories rose in his imagination. He remembered his last parting from his father and his wife. He remembered the days when he first loved her. He thought of her pregnancy and felt sorry for her and for himself, and in a nervously emotional and softened mood he went out of the hut in which he was billeted with Nesvitsky and began to walk up and down before it. The night was foggy, and through the fog the moonlight gleamed mysteriously. Yes, tomorrow, tomorrow, he thought, tomorrow everything may be over for me. All these memories will be no more. None of them will have any meaning for me. Tomorrow, perhaps, even certainly, I have a presentiment that for the first time I shall have to show all I can do." And his fancy pictured the battle, its loss, the concentration of fighting at one point, and the hesitation of all the commanders. And then that happy moment, that Toulon for which he had so long waited, presents itself to him at last. He firmly and clearly expresses his opinion to Kutuzov, to Vayroder, and to the emperors. All are struck by the justness of his views. 
but no one undertakes to carry them out. So he takes a regiment, a division, stipulates that no one is to interfere with his arrangements, leads his division to the decisive point, and gains the victory alone." "'But death and suffering?' suggested another voice. Prince Andrew, however, did not answer that voice, and went on dreaming of his triumphs. The dispositions for the next battle are planned by him alone. Nominally, he is only an adjutant on Kutuzov's staff, but he does everything alone. The next battle is won by him alone. Kutuzov is removed and he is appointed." "'Well, and then?' asked the other voice. "'If before that you are not ten times wounded, killed, or betrayed, well, what then?' "'What then?' Prince Andrew answered himself. "'I don't know what will happen, and don't want to know, and can't. But if I want this—want glory, want to be known to men, want to be loved by them, it is not my fault that I want it, and want nothing but that, and live only for that. Yes, for that alone. I shall never tell anyone, but, oh God, what am I to do if I love nothing but fame and men's esteem? Death, wounds, the loss of family, I fear nothing. And precious and dear as many persons are to me, father, sister, wife, those dearest to me, yet dreadful and unnatural as it seems, I would give them all at once for a moment of glory, a triumph over men, of love from men I don't know and never shall know, for the love of these men here," he thought as he listened to voices in Kutuzov's courtyard. The voices were those of the orderlies who were packing up. One voice, probably a coachman's, was teasing Kutuzov's old cook, whom Prince Andrew knew and who was called Tit. He was saying, "'Tit! I say, Tit!' Well, returned the old man. Go, Tit, thresh a bit, said the wag. Oh, go to the devil, called out a voice, drowned by the laughter of the orderlies and servants. All the same, I love and value nothing but triumph over them all. I value this mystic power and glory that is floating here above me in this mist. End of Book Three, Chapter Twelve Book Three, Chapter Thirteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Thirteen. That same night, Rostov was with a platoon on skirmishing duty in front of Brigadian's detachment. His hussars were placed along the line in couples and he himself rode along the line trying to master the sleepiness that kept coming over him. An enormous space, with our army's campfires dimly glowing in the fog, could be seen behind him. In front of him was misty darkness. Rostov could see nothing, peer as he would into that foggy distance. Now something gleamed gray, now there was something black. Now little light seemed to glimmer where the enemy ought to be. Now he fancied it was only something in his own eyes. His eyes kept closing, and in his fancy appeared, now the Emperor, now Denisov, and now Moscow memories, and he again hurriedly opened his eyes and saw close before him the head and ears of the horse he was riding, and sometimes, when he came within six paces of them, the black figures of hussars, 
but in the distance was still the same misty darkness. Why not? It might easily happen, thought Rostov, that the Emperor will meet me and give me an order as he would to any other officer. He'll say, go and find out what's there. There are many stories of his getting to know an officer in just such a way and attaching him to himself. What if he gave me a place near him? Oh, how I would guard him! How I would tell him the truth! How I would unmask his deceivers! And in order to realize vividly his love devotion to the sovereign, Rostov pictured to himself an enemy or a deceitful German, whom he would not only kill with pleasure, but whom he would slap in the face before the Emperor. Suddenly a distant shout aroused him. He started and opened his eyes. Where am I? Oh, yes, in the skirmishing line. Pass and watchword. Shaft Olmutz. What a nuisance that our squadron will be in reserve tomorrow, he thought. I'll ask leave to go to the front. This may be my only chance of seeing the Emperor. It won't be long now before I am off duty. I'll take another turn, and when I get back, I'll go to the general and ask him. He readjusted himself in the saddle and touched up his horse to ride once more round his hussars. It seemed to him that it was getting lighter. To the left he saw a sloping descent lit up, and facing it a black knoll that seemed as steep as a wall. On this knoll there was a white patch that Rostov could not at all make out. Was it a glade in the wood lit up by the moon, or some unmelted snow, or some white houses? He even thought something moved on that white spot. I expect it's snow. That spot, a spot. Un tosh, he thought. There now, it's not a tosh. Natasha, sister, black eyes. Na, Tasha. Won't she be surprised when I tell her how I've seen the Emperor? Natasha, take my saber tosh. Keep to the right, Your Honor, there are bushes here, came the voice of an hussar, past whom Rostov was riding in the act of falling asleep. Rostov lifted his head that had sunk almost to his horse's mane and pulled up beside the hussar. He was succumbing to irresistible, youthful, childish drowsiness. But what was I thinking? I mustn't forget. How shall I speak to the Emperor? No, that's not it. That's tomorrow. Oh, yes. Natasha. Sabertash. Saber them. Whom? The hussars. Ah, the hussars with mustaches. Along the Tverskaya street rode the hussar with mustaches. I thought about him, too, just opposite Guryev's house. Old Guryev. Oh, but Denisov's a fine fellow. But that's all nonsense. The chief thing is that the Emperor is here. How he looked at me and wished to say something, but dared not. No, it was I who dared not. But that's nonsense. The chief thing is not to forget the important thing I was thinking of. Yes, Natasha, Sabretash. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. And his head once more sank to his horse's neck. All at once it seemed to him that he was being fired at. What? 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 Cut them down! What? said Rostov, waking up. At the moment he opened his eyes, he heard in front of him, where the enemy was, the long-drawn shouts of thousands of voices. His horse and the horse of the hussar near him pricked their ears at these shouts. 
Over there, where the shouting came from, a fire flared up and went out again, then another, and all along the French line on the hill fires flared up and the shouting grew louder and louder. Rostov could hear the sound of French words but could not distinguish them. The din of many voices was too great. All he could hear was, and "'What's that? What do you make of it?' said Rostov to the hussar beside him. "'That must be the enemy's camp.' The hussar did not reply. "'Why, don't you hear it?' Rostov asked again, after waiting for a reply. "'Who can tell, Your Honor?' replied the hussar reluctantly. "'From the direction it must be the enemy,' repeated Rostov. "'It may be he, or it may be nothing,' muttered the hussar. It's dark. Steady, he cried to his fidgeting horse. Rostov's horse was also getting restive. It pawed the frozen ground, pricking its ears at the noise and looking at the lights. The shouting grew still louder and merged into a general roar that only an army of several thousand men could produce. The lights spread farther and farther, probably along the line of the French camp. Rostov no longer wanted to sleep. The gay, triumphant shouting of the enemy army had a stimulating effect on him. "'Vive l'Empereur! Vive l'Empereur!' he now heard distinctly. "'They can't be far off, probably just beyond the stream,' he said to the hussar beside him. The hussar only sighed without replying and coughed angrily. The sound of horses' hoofs approaching at a trot along the line of hussars was heard, and out of the foggy darkness the figure of a sergeant of hussars suddenly appeared, looming huge as an elephant. "'Your Honor, the generals,' said the sergeant, riding up to Rostov. Rostov, still looking round toward the fires and the shouts, rode with the sergeant to meet some mounted men who were riding along the line. One was on a white horse. Prince Bagradian and Prince Dolgorukov with their adjutants had come to witness the curious phenomenon of the lights and shouts in the enemy's camp. Rostov rode up to Bagradian, reported to him, and then joined the adjutants listening to what the generals were saying. "'Believe me,' said Prince Dolgorukov, addressing Bagradian, "'it is nothing but a trick. He has retreated and ordered the rearguard to kindle fires and make a noise to deceive us.' "'Hardly,' said Bagradian. "'I saw them this evening on that knoll. If they have retreated, they would have withdrawn from that too. Officer!' said Bagradian to Rostov. Are the enemy's skirmishers still there? They were there this evening, but now I don't know, Your Excellency. Shall I go with some of my hussars to see? replied Rostov. Bagradian stopped, and before replying, tried to see Rostov's face in the mist. Well, go and see, he said after a pause. Yes, sir. Rostov spurred his horse, called to Sergeant Fedchenko and two other hussars, told them to follow him, and trotted downhill in the direction from which the shouting came. He felt both frightened and pleased to be riding alone with three hussars into that mysterious and dangerous misty distance, where no one had been before him. Bagradian called to him from the hill not to go beyond the stream, but Rostov pretended not to hear him, and did not stop but rode on and on, continually mistaking bushes for trees and gullies for men, and continually discovering his mistakes. Having descended the hill at a trot, he no longer saw either our own or the enemy's fires, but heard the shouting of the French more loudly and distinctly. 
In the valley he saw before him something like a river, but when he reached it he found it was a road. Having come out onto the road he reined in his horse, hesitating whether to ride along it or cross it and ride over the black field up the hillside. To keep to the road which gleamed white in the mist would have been safer, because it would be easier to see people coming along it. "'Follow me,' he said, crossing the road, and began riding up the hill at a gallop toward the point where the French pickets had been standing that evening. "'Your Honor, there he is!' cried one of the hussars behind him. And before Rostov had time to make out what the black thing was that had suddenly appeared in the fog, there was a flash, followed by a report, and a bullet whizzing high up in the mist with a plaintive sound passed out of hearing. Another musket missed fire but flashed in the pan. Rostov turned his horse and galloped back. Four more reports followed at intervals, and the bullets passed somewhere in the fog singing in different tones. Rostov reined in his horse, whose spirits had risen like his own at the firing, and went back at a foot-pace. "'Well, some more! Some more!' a merry voice was saying in his soul. But no more shots came. Only when approaching Magradian did Rostov let his horse gallop again, and with his hand at the salute rode up to the general. Dolgorukov was still insisting that the French had retreated, and had only lit fires to deceive us. "'What does that prove?' he was saying as Rostov rode up. "'They might retreat and leave the pickets.' "'It's plain that they have not all gone yet, Prince,' said Bagradian. "'Wait till tomorrow morning. We'll find out everything tomorrow.' "'The picket is still on the hill, Your Excellency, just where it was in the evening,' reported Rostov, stooping forward with his hand at the salute, and unable to repress the smile of delight induced by his ride and especially by the sound of the bullets. "'Very good, very good,' said Bagradian. "'Thank you, officer.' "'Your Excellency,' said Rostov, "'may I ask a favor? "'What is it?' Tomorrow our squadron is to be in reserve. May I ask to be attached to the first squadron? What's your name? Count Rostov. Oh, very well. You may stay in attendance on me. Count Ilya Rostov's son? asked Dolgorukov. But Rostov did not reply. Then I may reckon on it, Your Excellency? I will give the order. Tomorrow, very likely. I may be sent with some message to the Emperor," thought Rostov. Thank God! The fires and shouting in the enemy's army were occasioned by the fact that, while Napoleon's proclamation was being read to the troops, the Emperor himself rode round his bivouacs. The soldiers, on seeing him, lit wisps of straw and ran after him, shouting, "'Vive l'Empereur!' Napoleon's proclamation was as follows. "'Soldiers!' The Russian army is advancing against you to avenge the Austrian army of Ulm. They are the same battalions you broke at Holobrun, and have pursued ever since to this place. The position we occupy is a strong one, and while they are marching to go round me on the right, they will expose a flank to me. Soldiers, I will myself direct your battalions. I will keep out of fire if you with your habitual valour carry disorder and confusion into the enemy's ranks but should victory be in doubt, even for a moment, you will see your emperor exposing himself to the first blows of the enemy, for there must be no doubt of victory, especially on this day when what is at stake is the honour of the French infantry, so necessary to the honour of our nation. Do not break your ranks on the plea of removing the wounded. 
let every man be fully imbued with the thought that we must defeat these hirelings of England, inspired by such hatred of our nation. This victory will conclude our campaign, and we can return to winter quarters, where fresh French troops who are being raised in France will join us, and the peace I shall conclude will be worthy of my people, of you, and of myself. Napoleon End of Book 3, Chapter 13Book Three, Chapter Fourteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Fourteen. At five in the morning, it was still quite dark. The troops of the center, the reserves, and Bagradian's right flank had not yet moved, but on the left flank, the columns of infantry, cavalry, and artillery which were to be the first to descend the heights to attack the French right flank and drive it into the Bohemian mountains, according to plan, were already up and astir. The smoke of the campfires into which they were throwing everything superfluous made the eyes smart. It was cold and dark. The officers were hurriedly drinking tea and breakfasting. The soldiers, munching biscuit and beating a tattoo with their feet to warm themselves, gathering round the fires, throwing into the flames, the remains of sheds, chairs, tables, wheels, tubs, and everything that they did not want or could not carry away with them. Austrian column guides were moving in and out among the Russian troops and served as heralds of the advance. As soon as an Austrian officer showed himself near a commanding officer's quarters, the regiment began to move. The soldiers ran from the fires, thrust their pipes into their boots, their bags into the carts, got their muskets ready, and formed rank. The officers buttoned up their coats, buckled on their swords and pouches, and moved along the ranks shouting. The train drivers and orderlies harnessed and packed the wagons and tied on the loads. The adjutants and battalion and regimental commanders mounted, crossed themselves, gave final instructions, orders, and commissions to the baggage men who remained behind, and the monotonous tramp of thousands of feet resounded. The column moved forward without knowing where and, unable, from the masses around them, the smoke and the increasing fog, to see either the place they were leaving or that to which they were going. A soldier on the march is hemmed in and borne along by his regiment, as much as a sailor is by his ship. However far he has walked, whatever strange, unknown, and dangerous places he reaches, just as a sailor is always surrounded by the same deck, masts, and rigging of his ship, so the soldier always has around him the same comrades, the same ranks, the same sergeant-major Ivan Mitrich, the same company dog Jack, and the same commanders. The sailor rarely cares to know the latitude in which his ship is sailing, but on the day of battle, heaven knows how and whence, a stern note of which all are conscious sounds in the moral atmosphere of an army, announcing the approach of something decisive and solemn and awakening in the men an unusual curiosity. On the day of battle the soldiers excitedly try to get beyond the interests of their regiment. They listen intently, look about, and eagerly ask concerning what is going on around them. The fog had grown so dense that though it was growing light they could not see ten paces ahead. Bushes looked like gigantic trees, and level ground like cliffs and slopes. Anywhere, on any side, one might encounter an enemy invisible ten paces off. 
but the columns advanced for a long time, always in the same fog, descending and ascending hills, avoiding gardens and enclosures, going over new and unknown ground, and nowhere encountering the enemy. On the contrary, the soldiers became aware that in front, behind, and on all sides, other Russian columns were moving in the same direction. Every soldier felt glad to know that to the unknown place where he was going, many more of our men were going too. "'There now, the Kurskys have also gone past,' was being said in the ranks. "'It's wonderful what a lot of our troops have gathered, lads. Last night I looked at the campfires and there was no end of them. A regular Moscow!' Though none of the column commanders rode up to the ranks or talked to the men, the commanders, as we saw at the Council of War, were out of humor and dissatisfied with the affair, and so did not exert themselves to cheer the men but merely carried out the orders. Yet the troops marched gaily, as they always do when going into action, especially to an attack. But when they had marched for about an hour in the dense fog, the greater part of the men had to halt, and an unpleasant consciousness of some dislocation and blunder spread through the ranks. How such a consciousness is communicated is very difficult to define, but it certainly is communicated very surely, and flows rapidly, imperceptibly, and irrepressibly, as water does in a creek. Had the Russian army been alone without any allies, it might perhaps have been a long time before this consciousness of mismanagement became a general conviction, but as it was, the disorder was readily and naturally attributed to the stupid Germans, and every woman was convinced that a dangerous muddle had been occasioned by the sausage-eaters. "'Why have we stopped? Is the way blocked? Or have we already come up against the French?' "'No, one can't hear them. They'd be firing if we had.' "'They were in a hurry enough to start us, and now here we stand in the middle of a field without rhyme or reason. It's all those damned Germans muddling. What stupid devils!' Yes, I'd send them on in front, but no fear, they're crowding up behind. And now here we stand hungry. I say, shall we soon be clear? They say the cavalry are blocking the way, said an officer. Oh, those damned Germans! They don't know their own country, said another. What division are you? shouted an adjutant, riding up. The eighteenth? Then why are you here? You should have gone on long ago. Now you won't get there till evening. What stupid orders! They don't themselves know what they are doing," said the officer, and rode off. Then a general rode past, shouting something angrily, not in Russian. Tafa la fa! But what he's jabbering, no one can make out," said a soldier, mimicking the general who had ridden away. "I'd shoot them, the scoundrels." We were ordered to be at the place before nine but we haven't got halfway. Fine orders!" was being repeated on different sides. And the feeling of energy with which the troops had started began to turn into vexation and anger at the stupid arrangements and at the Germans. The cause of the confusion was that, while the Austrian cavalry was moving toward our left flank, the higher command found that our center was too far separated from our right flank, and the cavalry were all ordered to turn back to the right. Several thousand cavalry crossed in front of the infantry, who had to wait. At the front an altercation occurred between an Austrian guide and a Russian general. The general shouted a demand that the cavalry should be halted. 
the Austrian argued that not he, but the higher command was to blame. The troops, meanwhile, stood growing listless and dispirited. After an hour's delay they at last moved on, descending the hill. The fog that was dispersing on the hill lay still more densely below, where they were descending. In front in the fog a shot was heard, and then another, at first irregularly at varying intervals. Tut-tut-tut! And then more and more regularly and rapidly, and the action at the gold-box stream began. Not expecting to come on the enemy down by the stream, and having stumbled on him in the fog, hearing no encouraging word from their commanders, and with a consciousness of being too late spreading through the ranks, and above all, being unable to see anything in front or around them in the thick fog, the Russians exchanged shots with the enemy lazily, and advanced and again halted, receiving no timely orders from the officers or adjutants who wandered about in the fog in those unknown surroundings, unable to find their own regiments. In this way the action began for the first, second, and third columns, which had gone down into the valley. The fourth column, with which Kutuzov was, stood on the Pratzen Heights. Below, where the fight was beginning, there was still thick fog. On the higher ground it was clearing, but nothing could be seen of what was going on in the front. Whether all the enemy forces were, as we supposed, six miles away, or whether they were nearby in that sea of mist, no one knew till after eight o'clock. It was nine o'clock in the morning. The fog lay unbroken like a sea down below, but higher up at the village of Schlappenitz, where Napoleon stood with his marshals around him, it was quite light. Above him was a clear blue sky, and the sun's vast orb quivered like a huge hollow crimson float on the surface of that milky sea of mist. The whole French army, and even Napoleon himself with his staff, were not on the far side of the streams and hollows of Sokolnitz and Schlappenitz, beyond which we intended to take up our position and begin the action, but were on this side, so close to our own forces, that Napoleon, with the naked eye, could distinguish a mounted man from one on foot. Napoleon, in the blue cloak which he had worn on his Italian campaign, sat on his small grey Arab horse a little in front of his marshals. He gazed silently at the hills which seemed to rise out of the sea of mist, and on which the Russian troops were moving in the distance, and he listened to the sounds of firing in the valley. Not a single muscle of his face, which in those days was still thin, moved. His gleaming eyes were fixed intently on one spot. His predictions were being justified. Part of the Russian force had already descended into the valley toward the ponds and lakes and part were leaving these Pratzen Heights which he intended to attack, and regarded as the key to the position. He saw over the mist that in a hollow between two hills near the village of Pratzen, the Russian columns, their bayonets glittering, were moving continuously in one direction toward the valley, and disappearing one after another into the mist. From information he had received the evening before, from the sounds of wheels and footsteps heard by the outpost during the night, by the disorderly movement of the Russian columns, and from all indications, he saw clearly that the Allies believed him to be far away in front of them, and that the columns were moving near Pratzen constituted the center of the Russian army, and that that center was already sufficiently weakened to be successfully attacked. But still he did not begin the engagement. Today was a great day for him, the anniversary of his coronation. 
Before dawn he had slept for a few hours, and refreshed, vigorous, and in good spirits, he mounted his horse and rode out into the field in that happy mood in which everything seems possible and everything succeeds. He sat motionless, looking at the heights visible above the mist, and his cold face wore that special look of confident, self-complacent happiness that one sees on the face of a boy happily in love. The marshal stood behind him, not venturing to distract his attention. He looked now at the Pratzen Heights, now at the sun floating up out of the mist. When the sun had entirely emerged from the fog, and fields and mist were aglow with dazzling light, as if he had only awaited this to begin the action, he drew the glove from his shapely white hand, made a sign with it to the marshals, and ordered the action to begin. The marshals, accompanied by adjutants, galloped off in different directions, and a few minutes later the chief forces of the French army moved rapidly toward those Pratzen Heights, which were being more and more denuded by Russian troops moving down the valley to their left. End of Book Three, Chapter Fourteen Book Three, Chapter Fifteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Fifteen. At eight o'clock, Kutuzov rode to Pratzen at the head of the fourth column, Milorodovich's, the one that was to take the place of Prevozhuski's and Langeron's columns, which had already gone down into the valley. He greeted the men of the foremost regiment and gave them the order to march, thereby indicating that he intended to lead that column himself. When he had reached the village of Pratzen, he halted. Prince Andrew was behind, among the immense number forming the commander-in-chief's suite. He was in a state of suppressed excitement and irritation, though controllably calm as a man is at the approach of a long-awaited moment. He was firmly convinced that this was the day of his Toulon, or his bridge of Arcola. How it would come about he did not know, but he felt sure it would do so. The locality and the position of our troops were known to him as far as they could be known to anyone in our army. His own strategic plan, which obviously could not now be carried out, was forgotten. Now entering into Weyroder's plan, Prince Andrew considered possible contingencies, and formed new projects such as might call for his rapidity of perception and decision. To the left down below in the mist, the musketry fire of unseen forces could be heard. It was there Prince Andrew thought the fight would concentrate. There we shall encounter difficulties, and there, thought he, I shall be sent with a brigade or division, and there, standard in hand, I shall go forward and break whatever is in front of me. He could not look calmly at the standards of the passing battalions. Seeing them, he kept thinking, that may be the very standard with which I shall lead the army. In the morning all that was left of the night mist on the heights was a hoar-frost now turning to dew, but in the valleys it still lay like a milk-white sea. Nothing was visible in the valley to the left into which our troops had descended, and from whence came the sounds of firing. Above the heights was the dark, clear sky, and to the right the vast orb of the sun. In front, far off on the farther shore of that sea of mist, some wooded hills were discernible, and it was there the enemy probably was, 
for something could be descried. On the right the guards were entering the misty region with a sound of hoofs and wheels and now and then a gleam of bayonets. To the left, beyond the village, similar masses of cavalry came up and disappeared in the sea of mist. In front and behind moved infantry. The commander-in-chief was standing at the end of the village, letting the troops pass by him. That morning Kutuzov seemed worn and irritable. The infantry passing before him came to a halt without any command being given, apparently obstructed by something in front. "'Do order them to form into battalion columns and go round the village,' he said angrily to a general who had ridden up. "'Don't you understand, Your Excellency, my dear sir, that you must not defile through narrow village streets when we are marching against the enemy?' "'I intended to reform them beyond the village, Your Excellency,' answered the general. Kutuzov laughed bitterly. "'You'll make a fine thing of it, deploying in sight of the enemy. Very fine!' The enemy is still far away, Your Excellency. According to the dispositions—' "'The dispositions!' exclaimed Kutuzov bitterly. "'Who told you that? Kindly do as you are ordered.' "'Yes, sir.' "'My dear fellow,' Nesvitsky whispered to Prince Andrew, "'the old man is as surly as a dog.' An Austrian officer in a white uniform with green plumes in his hat galloped up to Kutuzov and asked him in the Emperor's name, had the fourth column advanced into action. Kutuzov turned round without answering, and his eye happened to fall upon Prince Andrew, who was beside him. Seeing him, Kutuzov's malevolent and caustic expression softened, as if admitting that what was being done was not his adjutant's fault, and still not answering the Austrian adjutant, he addressed Bolkonsky. Go, my dear fellow, and see whether the third division has passed the village. Tell it to stop and await my orders." Hardly had Prince Andrew started than he stopped him. "'And ask whether sharpshooters have been posted,' he added. "'What are they doing? What are they doing?' he murmured to himself, still not replying to the Austrian. Prince Andrew galloped off to execute the order. Overtaking the battalions that continued to advance, he stopped the third division and convinced himself that there really were no sharpshooters in front of our columns. The colonel at the head of the regiment was much surprised at the commander-in-chief's order to throw out skirmishers. He had felt perfectly sure that there were other troops in front of him, and that the enemy must be at least six miles away. There was really nothing to be seen in front except a barren descent hidden by dense mist. Having given orders in the commander-in-chief's name to rectify this omission, Prince Andrew galloped back. Kutuzov still in the same place, his stout body resting heavily in the saddle with the lassitude of age, sat yawning wearily with closed eyes. The troops were no longer moving, but stood with the butts of their muskets on the ground. "'All right, all right,' he said to Prince Andrew, and turned to a general, who, watch in hand, was saying it was time they started, as all the left flank columns had already descended. "'Plenty of time, Your Excellency,' muttered Kutuzov in the midst of a yawn. "'Plenty of time,' he repeated. Just then, at a distance behind Kutuzov, was heard the sound of regiment saluting, and this sound rapidly came nearer along the whole extended line of the advancing Russian columns. Evidently the person they were greeting was riding quickly. When the soldiers of the regiment in front of which Kutuzov was standing began to shout, 
he rode a little to one side and looked round with a frown. Along the road from Pratzen galloped what looked like a squadron of horsemen in various uniforms. Two of them rode side by side in front at full gallop. One in a black uniform with white plumes on his hat rode a bobtailed chestnut horse. The other, who is in a white uniform, rode a black one. These were the two emperors, followed by their suites. Kutuzov, affecting the manners of an old soldier at the front, gave the command, Attention! and rode up to the emperors with a salute. His whole appearance and manner were suddenly transformed. He put on the air of a subordinate who obeys without reasoning. With an affectation of respect which evidently struck Alexander unpleasantly, he rode up and saluted. This unpleasant impression merely flitted over the young and happy face of the emperor like a cloud of haze across a clear sky and vanished. After his illness, he looked rather thinner that day than on the field of Olmutz, where Bolkonsky had seen him for the first time abroad. But there was still the same bewitching combination of majesty and mildness in his fine gray eyes, and on his delicate lips the same capacity for varying expression, and the same prevalent appearance of good-hearted innocent youth. At the Olmutz Review he had seemed more majestic. Here he seemed brighter and more energetic. He was slightly flushed after galloping two miles, and reining in his horse he sighed restfully and looked round at the faces of his suite, young and animated as his own. Zartorisky, Novoziltsev, Prince Volkonsky, Stroganov, and the others, all richly dressed gay young men on splendid, well-groomed, fresh, only slightly heated horses, exchanging remarks and smiling, had stopped behind the Emperor. The Emperor Francis, a rosy, long-faced young man, sat very erect on his handsome black horse, looking about him in a leisurely and preoccupied manner. He beckoned to one of his white adjutants and asked him some question. Most likely he is asking at what o'clock they started, thought Prince Andrew, watching his old acquaintance with a smile he could not repress as he recalled his reception at Brune. In the Emperor's suite were the picked young orderly officers of the guard and line regiments, Russian and Austrian. Among them were grooms leading the Tsar's beautiful relay horses covered with embroidered cloths. As when a window is opened a whiff of fresh air from the fields enters a stuffy room, so a whiff of youthfulness, energy, and confidence of success reached Kutuzov's cheerless staff with the galloping advent of all these brilliant young men. "'Why aren't you beginning, Michael Ilyaronovitch?' said the Emperor Alexander hurriedly to Kutuzov, glancing courteously at the same time at the Emperor Francis. "'I am waiting, Your Majesty,' answered Kutuzov, bending forward respectfully. The Emperor, frowning slightly, bent his ear forward as if he had not quite heard. "'Waiting, Your Majesty,' repeated Kutuzov. Prince Andrew noted that Kutuzov's upper lip twitched unnaturally as he said the word waiting. "'Not all the columns have formed up yet, Your Majesty.' The Tsar heard, but obviously did not like the reply. He shrugged his rather round shoulders and glanced at Novoziltsev, who was near him, as if complaining of Kutuzov. "'You know, Michael Ilyaronovitch, we are not on the Empress Field where a parade does not begin till all the troops are assembled.' said the Tsar, with another glance at the Emperor Francis, as if inviting him, if not to join in, at least to listen to what he was saying. 
but the Emperor Francis continued to look about him and did not listen. "'That is just why I do not begin, sire,' said Kutuzov in a resounding voice, apparently to preclude the possibility of not being heard, and again something in his face twitched. "'That is just why I do not begin, sire, because we are not on parade and not on the Emperor's field,' said he clearly and distinctly. In the Emperor's suite all exchanged rapid looks that expressed dissatisfaction and reproach. Although he may be, he should not, he certainly should not speak like that, their glances seemed to say. The Tsar looked intently and observantly into Kutuzov's eye, waiting to hear whether he would say anything more. But Kutuzov, with respectfully bowed head, seemed also to be waiting. The silence lasted for about a minute. However, if you command it, Your Majesty," said Kutuzov, lifting his head and again assuming his former tone of a dull, unreasoning but submissive general. He touched his horse and having called Miloradovich, the commander of the column, gave him the order to advance. The troops again began to move, and two battalions of the Novgorod and one of the Absharan regiment went forward past the Emperor. As this Absharan battalion marched by, the red-faced Miloradovich, without his greatcoat, with his orders on his breast and an enormous tuft of plumes in his cocked hat, worn on one side with its corners front and back, galloped strenuously forward, and with a dashing salute reined in his horse before the Emperor. "'God be with you, General,' said the Emperor. "'Ma foi, sire! Nous ferons ce qui sera dans notre possibilité, sire!' "'Indeed, sire, we shall do everything it is possible to do, sire.' he answered gaily, raising nevertheless ironic smiles among the gentlemen of the Tsar's suite by his poor French. Miloradovich wheeled his horse sharply and stationed himself a little behind the Emperor. The Absharan men, excited by the Tsar's presence, passed in step before the Emperor's and their suites at a bold, brisk pace. "'Lads!' shouted Miloradovich in a loud, self-confident and cheery voice obviously so elated by the sound of firing, by the prospect of battle, and by the sight of the gallant Absherans, his comrades in Suvarov's time, now passing so gallantly before the Emperor's, that he forgot the Sovereign's presence. "'Lads, it's not the first village you've had to take!' cried he. "'Glad to do our best!' shouted the soldiers. The Emperor's horse started at the sudden cry. This horse that had carried the Sovereign at reviews in Russia, bore him also here on the field of Austerlitz, enduring the heedless blows of his left foot, and pricking its ears at the sound of shots just as it had done on the Emperor's field, not understanding the significance of the firing, nor of the nearness of the Emperor Francis Black Cobb, nor of all that was being said, thought, and felt that day by its rider. The Emperor turned with a smile to one of his followers and made a remark to him, pointing to the gallant Apsherans. End of Book 3, Chapter 15。Book 3, Chapter 16 of War and Peace, Volume 1, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 3, Chapter 16 Kutuzov, accompanied by his adjutants, rode at a walking pace behind the carabineers. 
when he had gone less than half a mile in the rear of the column, he stopped at a solitary, deserted house that had probably once been an inn, where two roads parted. Both of them led downhill and troops were marching along both. The fog had begun to clear and enemy troops were already dimly visible about a mile and a half off on the opposite heights. Down below, on the left, the firing became more distinct. Kutuzov had stopped and was speaking to an Austrian general. Prince Andrew, who was a little behind looking at them, turned to an adjutant to ask him for a field-glass. "'Look, look!' said this adjutant, looking not at the troops in the distance, but down the hill before him. "'It's the French!' The two generals and the adjutant took hold of the field-glass, trying to snatch it from one another. The expression on all their faces suddenly changed to one of horror. The French were supposed to be a mile and a half away but had suddenly and unexpectedly appeared just in front of us. "'It's the enemy? No. Yes, see, it is. For certain. But how is that?' said different voices. With the naked eye, Prince Andrew saw below them to the right, not more than five hundred paces from where Kutuzov was standing, a dense French column coming up to meet the Apsherans. "'Here it is. The decisive moment has arrived.' My turn has come," thought Prince Andrew, and striking his horse he rode up to Kutuzov. "'The Apsherans must be stopped, Your Excellency,' cried he. But at that very instant a cloud of smoke spread all round, firing was heard quite close at hand, and a voice of naive terror barely two steps from Prince Andrew shouted, "'Brothers, all's lost!' And at this, as if at a command, everyone began to run. Confused and ever-increasing crowds were running back to where five minutes before the troops had passed the Emperor's. Not only would it have been difficult to stop that crowd, it was even impossible not to be carried back with it oneself. Balkonsky only tried not to lose touch with it, and looking around bewildered and unable to grasp what was happening in front of him. Nesvitsky, with an angry face, red and unlike himself, was shouting to Kutuzov that if he did not ride away at once he would certainly be taken prisoner. Kutuzov remained in the same place and without answering drew out a handkerchief. Blood was flowing from his cheek. Prince Andrew forced his way to him. "'You are wounded?' he asked, hardly able to master the trembling of his lower jaw. "'The wound is not here, it is there,' said Kutuzov, pressing the handkerchief to his wounded cheek and pointing to the fleeing soldiers. "'Stop them!' he shouted, and at the same moment, probably realizing that it was impossible to stop them, spurred his horse and rode to the right. A fresh wave of the flying mob caught him and bore him back with it. The troops were running in such a dense mass that once surrounded by them it was difficult to get out again. One was shouting, "'Get on! Why are you hindering us?' Another in the same place turned round and fired in the air. A third was striking the horse Kutuzov himself rode. Having by a great effort got away to the left from that flood of men, Kutuzov, with his suite diminished by more than half, rode toward a sound of artillery fire nearby. Having forced his way out of the crowd of fugitives, Prince Andrew, trying to keep near Kutuzov, saw on the slope of the hill amid the smoke a Russian battery that was still firing, and Frenchmen running toward it. Higher up stood some Russian infantry, neither moving forward to protect the battery nor backward with the fleeing crowd. 
a mounted general separated himself from the infantry and approached Kutuzov. Of Kutuzov's suite only four remained. They were all pale and exchanged looks in silence. "'Stop those wretches!' gasped Kutuzov to the regimental commander, pointing to the flying soldiers. But at that instant, as if to punish him for those words, bullets flew hissing across the regiment and across Kutuzov's suite like a flock of little birds. The French had attacked the battery, and seeing Kutuzov were firing at him. After this volley, the regimental commander clutched at his leg. Several soldiers fell, and a second lieutenant who was holding the flag let it fall from his hands. It swayed and fell, but caught on the muskets of the nearest soldiers. The soldiers started firing without orders. "'Oh, oh, oh!' groaned Kutuzov despairingly and looked around. "'Bolkonsky!' he whispered, his voice trembling from a consciousness of the feebleness of age. "'Bolkonsky!' he whispered, pointing to the disordered battalion and at the enemy. "'What's that?' But before he had finished speaking, Prince Andrew, feeling tears of shame and anger choking him, had already leapt from his horse and run to the standard. "'Forward, lads!' he shouted in a voice piercing as a child's. "'Here it is,' thought he, seizing the staff of the standard and hearing with pleasure the whistle of bullets evidently aimed at him. Several soldiers fell. "'Hurrah!' shouted Prince Andrew, and scarcely able to hold up the heavy standard, he ran forward with full confidence that the whole battalion would follow him. And really he only ran a few steps alone. One soldier moved, and then another, and soon the whole battalion ran forward shouting, "'Hurrah!' and overtook him. A sergeant of the battalion ran up and took the flag that was swaying from its weight in Prince Andrew's hands, but he was immediately killed. Prince Andrew again seized the standard, and dragging it by the staff, ran on with the battalion. In front he saw our artillerymen, some of whom were fighting, while others, having abandoned their guns, were running toward him. He also saw French infantry soldiers who were seizing the artillery horses and turning the guns round. Prince Andrew and the battalion were already within twenty paces of the cannon. He heard the whistle of bullets above him unceasingly, and to right and left of him soldiers continually groaned and dropped. But he did not look at them. He looked only at what was going on in front of him, at the battery. He now saw clearly the figure of a red-haired gunner with his shako knocked awry, pulling one end of a mop while a French soldier tugged at the other. He could distinctly see the distraught yet angry expression on the faces of these two men, who evidently did not realize what they were doing. "'What are they about?' thought Prince Andrew as he gazed at them. "'Why doesn't the red-haired gunner run away as he is unarmed? Why doesn't the Frenchman stab him?' He will not get away before the Frenchman remembers his bayonet and stabs him. And really another French soldier, trailing his musket, ran up to the struggling men, and the fate of the red-haired gunner, who had triumphantly secured the mop and still did not realize what awaited him, was about to be decided. But Prince Andrew did not see how it ended. It seemed to him as though one of the soldiers near him hit him on the head with the full swing of a bludgeon. It hurt a little, but the worst of it was that the pain distracted him and prevented his seeing what he had been looking at. "'What's this? Am I falling? My legs are giving way,' thought he and fell on his back. 
He opened his eyes, hoping to see how the struggle of the Frenchman with the gunners ended, whether the red-haired gunner had been killed or not, and whether the cannon had been captured or saved. But he saw nothing. Above him there was now nothing but the sky, the lofty sky, not clear yet, still immeasurably lofty, with gray clouds gliding slowly across it. How quiet, peaceful, and solemn! Not at all as I ran, thought Prince Andrew. Not as we ran, shouting and fighting. Not at all as the gunner and the Frenchman with the frightened and angry faces struggled for the mop. How differently do those clouds glide across that lofty, infinite sky! How was it I did not see that lofty sky before? And how happy I am to have found it at last! Yes, all is vanity, all falsehood, except that infinite sky. There is nothing, nothing but that. But even if it does not exist, there is nothing but quiet and peace. Thank God! End of Book Three, Chapter Sixteen Book Three, Chapter Seventeen of War and Peace, Volume One by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Seventeen on our right flank commanded by Bergradian, at nine o'clock the battle had not yet begun. Not wishing to agree to Dolgorukov's demand to commence the action, and wishing to avert responsibility from himself, Prince Bergradian proposed to Dolgorukov to send to inquire of the commander-in-chief. Bergradian knew that as the distance between the two flanks was more than six miles, even if the messenger were not killed, which he very likely would be, and found the commander-in-chief, which would be very difficult, he would not be able to get back before evening. Bagradian cast his large, expressionless, sleepy eyes round his suite, and the boyish face of Rostov, breathless with excitement and hope, was the first to catch his eye. He sent him. "'And if I should meet His Majesty before I meet the Commander-in-Chief, Your Excellency,' said Rostov, with his hand to his cap. "'You can give the message to His Majesty.' said Dolgorukov, hurriedly interrupting Bagradian. On being relieved from picket duty, Rostov had managed to get a few hours' sleep before morning, and felt cheerful, bold, and resolute, with elasticity of movement, faith in his good fortune, and generally in that state of mind which makes everything seem possible, pleasant, and easy. All his wishes were being fulfilled that morning. There was to be a general engagement in which he was taking part. More than that, he was orderly to the bravest general, and still more, he was going with a message to Kutuzov, perhaps even to the sovereign himself. The morning was bright, he had a good horse under him, and his heart was full of joy and happiness. On receiving the order he gave his horse the rein and galloped along the line. At first he rode along the line of Bergradian's troops, which had not yet advanced into action but were standing motionless. Then he came to the region occupied by Uvarov's cavalry, and here he noticed a stir and signs of preparation for battle. Having passed Uvarov's cavalry, he clearly heard the sound of cannon and musketry ahead of him. The firing grew louder and louder. In the fresh morning air were now heard, 
not two or three musket shots at irregular intervals as before, followed by one or two cannon shots, but a roll of volleys of musketry from the slopes of the hill before Pratzen, interrupted by such frequent reports of cannon that sometimes several of them were not separated from one another but merged into a general roar. He could see puffs of musketry smoke that seemed to chase one another down the hillsides, and clouds of cannon smoke rolling, spreading, and mingling with one another. He could also, by the gleam of bayonets visible through the smoke, make out moving masses of infantry and narrow lines of artillery with green caissons. Rostov stopped his horse for a moment on a hillock to see what was going on, but strained his attention as he would, he could not understand or make out anything of what was happening. There in the smoke men of some sort were moving about, in front and behind moved lines of troops. But why, whither and who they were, it was impossible to make out. These sights and sounds had no depressing or intimidating effect on him. On the contrary, they stimulated his energy and determination. "'Go on, go on, give it them!' he mentally exclaimed at these sounds, and again proceeded to gallop along the line, penetrating farther and farther into the region where the army was already in action. "'How it will be there, I don't know, but all will be well,' thought Rostov. After passing some Austrian troops, he noticed that the next part of the line, the guards, was already in action. "'So much the better. I shall see it close,' he thought. He was riding almost along the front line. A handful of men came galloping toward him. They were our Uhlans, who with disordered ranks were returning from the attack. Rostov got out of their way, involuntarily noticed that one of them was bleeding, and galloped on. That is no business of mine, he thought. He had not ridden many hundred yards after that before he saw to his left, across the whole width of the field, an enormous mass of cavalry in brilliant white uniforms, mounted on black horses, trotting straight toward him and across his path. Rostov put his horse to full gallop to get out of the way of these men, and he would have got clear had they continued at the same speed, but they kept increasing their pace so that some of the horses were already galloping. Rostov heard the thud of their hoofs and the jingle of their weapons and saw their horses, their figures, and even their faces more and more distinctly. They were our horse guards, advancing to attack the French cavalry that was coming to meet them. The horse guards were galloping, but still holding in their horses. Rostov could already see their faces and heard the command, Charge! shouted by an officer who was urging his thoroughbred to full speed. Rostov, fearing to be crushed or swept into the attack on the French, galloped along the front as hard as his horse could go, but still was not in time to avoid them. The last of the horse guards, a huge pockmarked fellow, frowned angrily on seeing Rostov before him, with whom he would inevitably collide. This guardsman would certainly have bowled Rostov and his Bedouin over. Rostov felt himself quite tiny and weak compared to these gigantic men and horses, had it not occurred to Rostov to flourish his whip before the eyes of the guardsman's horse. The heavy black horse, sixteen hands high, shied, throwing back its ears. But the pockmarked guardsman drove his huge spurs in violently, and the horse, flourishing its tail and extending its neck, galloped on yet faster. Hardly had the horse-guards passed Rostov before he heard them shout, Hurrah! and looking back, saw that their foremost ranks were mixed up with some foreign cavalry with red epaulets, 
probably French. He could see nothing more, for immediately afterwards cannon began firing from somewhere and smoke enveloped everything. At that moment, as the horse-guards having passed him disappeared in the smoke, Rostov hesitated whether to gallop after them or to go where he was sent. This was the brilliant charge of the horse-guards that amazed the French themselves. Rostov was horrified to hear later that of all that mass of huge and handsome men, of all those brilliant, rich youths, officers and cadets who had galloped past him on their thousand-ruble horses, only eighteen were left after the charge. "'Why should I envy them? My chance is not lost, and maybe I shall see the Emperor immediately,' thought Rostov, and galloped on. When he came level with the foot-guards, he noticed that about them and around them cannon-balls were flying, of which he was aware not so much because he heard their sound as because he saw uneasiness on the soldiers' faces, and unnatural warlike solemnity on those of the officers. Passing behind one of the lines of a regiment of foot-guards, he heard a voice calling him by name. "'Rostov!' "'What?' he answered, not recognizing Boris. "'I say, we've been in the front line! Our regiment attacked!' said Boris, with the happy smile seen on the faces of young men who have been under fire for the first time. Rostov stopped. "'Have you?' he said. "'Well, how did it go?' "'We drove them back,' said Boris, with animation, growing talkative. "'Can you imagine it?' And he began describing how the guards, having taken up their position and seeing troops before them, thought they were Austrians, and all at once discovered from the cannon-balls discharged by those troops that they were themselves in the front line, and had unexpectedly to go into action. Rostov, without hearing Boris to the end, spurred his horse. "'Where are you off to?' asked Boris. "'With a message to His Majesty.' "'There he is,' said Boris, thinking Rostov had said His Highness, and pointing to the Grand Duke, who, with his high shoulders and frowning brows, stood a hundred paces away from them in his helmet and horse-guard's jacket, shouting something to a pale, white-uniformed Austrian officer. "'But that's the Grand Duke, and I want the Commander-in-Chief or the Emperor,' said Rostov, and was about to spur his horse. "'Count! Count!' shouted Berg, who ran up from the other side as eager as Boris. "'Count! I am wounded in my right hand!' And he showed his bleeding hand with a handkerchief tied round it. "'And I remained at the front. I held my sword in my left hand, Count. All our family, the von Bergs, have been knights.' He said something more, but Rostov did not wait to hear it, and rode away. Having passed the guards and traversed an empty space, Rostov, to avoid again getting in front of the first line as he had done when the horse-guards charged, followed the line of reserves, going far round the place where the hottest musket-fire and cannonade were heard. Suddenly he heard musket-fire quite close in front of him, and behind our troops, where he could never have expected the enemy to be. What can it be? he thought. The enemy in the rear of our army? Impossible! And suddenly he was seized by a panic of fear for himself and for the issue of the whole battle. But be that what it may, he reflected, there is no riding round it now. I must look for the commander-in-chief here, and if all is lost it is for me to perish with the rest." The foreboding of evil that had suddenly come over Rostov was more and more confirmed the farther he rode into the region behind the village of Pratzen, 
which was full of troops of all kinds. "'What does it mean? What is it? Whom are they firing at? Who is firing?' Rostov kept asking as he came up to Russian and Austrian soldiers running in confused crowds across his path. "'The devil knows! They've killed everybody! It's all up now!' he was told in Russian, German, and Czech by the crowd of fugitives who understood what was happening as little as he did. "'Kill the Germans!' shouted one. "'May the devil take them, the traitors!' "'Zum Henker dieser Russen! Hang these Russians!' muttered a German. Several wounded men passed along the road, the words of abuse, screams and groans mingled in a general hubbub, then the firing died down. Rostov learned later that Russian and Austrian soldiers had been firing at one another. "'My God! What does it all mean?' thought he. And here, where at any moment the Emperor may see them, but no, these must be only a handful of scoundrels. It will soon be over. It can't be that. It can't be. Only to get past them quicker, quicker." The idea of defeat and flight could not enter Rostov's head, though he saw French cannon and French troops on the Pratzen Heights just where he had been ordered to look for the commander-in-chief, he could not, did not wish to, believe that. End of Book Three, Chapter Seventeen Book Three, Chapter Eighteen of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Eighteen. Rostov had been ordered to look for Kutuzov and the Emperor near the village of Pratzen, but neither they nor a single commanding officer were there, only disorganized crowds of troops of various kinds. He urged on his already weary horse to get quickly past these crowds, but the farther he went the more disorganized they were. The high road on which he had come out was thronged with kaleshes, carriages of all sorts, and Russian and Austrian soldiers of all arms, some wounded and some not. This whole mass droned and jostled in confusion under the dismal influence of cannonballs flying from the French batteries stationed on the Pratzen Heights. "'Where's the Emperor? Where's Kutuzov?' Rostov kept asking everyone he could stop, but got no answer from anyone. At last, seizing a soldier by his collar, he forced him to answer. "'Hey, brother! They've all bolted long ago!' said the soldier, laughing for some reason and shaking himself free. Having left that soldier who was evidently drunk, Rostov stopped the horse of a batman or groom of some important personage and began to question him. The man announced that the Tsar had been driven in a carriage at full speed about an hour before along that very road, and that he was dangerously wounded. "'It can't be,' said Rostov. "'It must have been someone else.' "'I saw him myself,' replied the man with a self-confident smile of derision. I ought to know the Emperor by now, after the times I've seen him in Petersburg. I saw him just as I see you. There he sat in the carriage as pale as anything. How they made the four black horses fly! Gracious me, they did rattle past! It's time I knew the imperial horses and Ilya Ivanitch. I don't think Ilya drives anyone except the Tsar." Rostov let go of the horse and was about to ride on, when a wounded officer passing by addressed him. "'Who is it you want?' he asked. "'The commander-in-chief?' 
He was killed by a cannonball, struck in the breast before our regiment. Not killed, wounded, another officer corrected him. Who? Kutuzov? asked Rostov. Not Kutuzov, but what's his name? Well, never mind. There are not many left alive. Go that way, to that village. All the commanders are there, said the officer, pointing to the village of Hosieradek, and he walked on. Rostov rode on at a footpace, not knowing why or to whom he was now going. The Emperor was wounded, the battle lost. It was impossible to doubt it now. Rostov rode in the direction pointed out to him, in which he saw turrets and a church. What need to hurry? What was he now to say to the Tsar or to Kutuzov, even if they were alive and unwounded? "'Take this road, Your Honor. That way you will be killed at once,' a soldier shouted to him. "'They'd kill you there.' "'Oh, what are you talking about?' said another. "'Where is he to go? That way is nearer.' Rostov considered, and then went in the direction where they said he would be killed. "'It's all the same now. If the Emperor is wounded, am I to try to save myself?' he thought. He rode on to the region where the greatest number of men had perished in fleeing from Pratzen. The French had not yet occupied that region, and the Russians, the uninjured and slightly wounded, had left it long ago. All about the field, like heaps of manure on well-kept plowland, lay from ten to fifteen dead and wounded to each couple of acres. The wounded crept together in twos and threes, and one could hear their distressing screams and groans, sometimes feigned or so it seemed to Rostov. He put his horse to a trot to avoid seeing all these suffering men, and he felt afraid, afraid not for his life, but for the courage he needed and which he knew would not stand the sight of these unfortunates. The French, who had ceased firing at this field strewn with dead and wounded where there was no one left to fire at, on seeing an adjutant riding over it, trained a gun on him and fired several shots. The sensation of those terrible whistling sounds, and of the corpses around him, merged in Rostov's mind into a single feeling of terror and pity for himself. He remembered his mother's last letter. What would she feel, thought he, if she saw me here now on this field with the cannon aimed at me? In the village of Hosieradek there were Russian troops retiring from the field of battle, who, though still in some confusion, were less disordered. The French cannon did not reach there, and the musketry fire sounded far away. Here everyone clearly saw and said that the battle was lost. No one whom Rostov asked could tell him where the Emperor or Kutuzov was. Some said the report that the Emperor was wounded was correct, others that it was not. And explained the false rumor that had spread by the fact that the Emperor's carriage had really galloped from the field of battle with the pale and terrified Oberhofmarschall Count Tolstoy, who had ridden out to the battlefield with others in the Emperor's suite. One officer told Rostov that he had seen someone from headquarters behind the village to the left, and thither Rostov rode, not hoping to find anyone, but merely to ease his conscience. When he had ridden about two miles and had passed the last of the Russian troops, he saw, near a kitchen garden with a ditch round it, two men on horseback facing the ditch. One with a white plume in his hat seemed familiar to Rostov, the other on a beautiful chestnut horse, which Rostov fancied he had seen before, rode up to the ditch, struck his horse with his spurs, and giving it the rein, leaped lightly over. 
Only a little earth crumbled from the bank under the horse's hind hoofs. Turning the horse sharply, he again jumped the ditch, and deferentially addressed the horseman with the white plumes, evidently suggesting that he should do the same. The rider, whose figure seemed familiar to Rostov and involuntarily riveted his attention, made a gesture of refusal with his head and hand, and by that gesture Rostov instantly recognized his lamented and adored monarch. But it can't be he, alone in the midst of this empty field, thought Rostov. At that moment Alexander turned his head, and Rostov saw the beloved features that were so deeply engraved on his memory. The Emperor was pale, his cheeks sunken and his eyes hollow, but the charm, the mildness of his features was all the greater. Rostov was happy in the assurance that the rumors about the Emperor being wounded were false. He was happy to be seeing him. He knew that he might, and even ought to go straight to him and give the message Dolgorukov had ordered him to deliver. But as a youth in love trembles, is unnerved, and dares not utter the thoughts he has dreamed of for nights, but looks around for help or a chance of delay in flight when the longed-for moment comes and he is alone with her, so Rostov, now that he had attained what he had longed for more than anything else in the world, did not know how to approach the Emperor and a thousand reasons occurred to him why it would be inconvenient, unseemly, and impossible to do so. What! It is as if I were glad of a chance to take advantage of his being alone and despondent. A strange face may seem unpleasant or painful to him at this moment of sorrow. Besides, what can I say to him now, when my heart fails me and my mouth feels dry at the mere sight of him? Not one of the innumerable speeches addressed to the Emperor that he had composed in his imagination could he now recall. Those speeches were intended for quite other conditions. They were for the most part to be spoken at a moment of victory and triumph, generally when he was dying of wounds and the Sovereign had thanked him for heroic deeds, and while dying he expressed the love his actions had proved. Besides. How can I ask the Emperor for his instructions for the right flank now that it is nearly four o'clock and the battle is lost? No, certainly, I must not approach him. I must not intrude on his reflections. Better die a thousand times than risk receiving an unkind look or bad opinion from him," Rostov decided, and sorrowfully and with a heart full of despair he rode away continually looking back at the Tsar, who still remained in the same attitude of indecision. While Rostov was thus arguing with himself and riding sadly away, Captain von Toll chanced to ride to the same spot, and seeing the Emperor at once rode up to him, offered his services, and assisted him to cross the ditch on foot. The Emperor, wishing to rest and feeling unwell, sat down under an apple-tree, and von Toll remained beside him. Rostov from a distance saw with envy and remorse how von Toll spoke long and warmly to the Emperor, and how the Emperor, evidently weeping, covered his eyes with his hand and pressed von Toll's hand. "'And I might have been in his place,' thought Rostov, and hardly restraining his tears of pity for the Emperor, he rode on in utter despair, not knowing where to or why he was now riding." His despair was all the greater from feeling that his own weakness was the cause of his grief. He might, not only might, but should have gone up to the Sovereign. 
It was a unique chance to show his devotion to the Emperor, and he had not made use of it. What have I done? thought he. And he turned round and galloped back to the place where he had seen the Emperor, but there was no one beyond the ditch now. Only some carts and carriages were passing by. From one of the drivers he learned that Kutuzov's staff were not far off, in the village the vehicles were going to. Rostov followed them. In front of him walked Kutuzov's groom leading horses in horse-cloths. Then came a cart, and behind that walked an old, bandy-legged domestic serf in a peaked cap and sheepskin coat. "'Tit! I say tit!' said the groom. "'What?' answered the old man absent-mindedly. "'Go, tit! Thresh a bit!' "'Oh, you fool!' said the old man, spitting angrily. Some time passed in silence, and then the same joke was repeated. Before five in the evening the battle had been lost at all points. More than a hundred cannon were already in the hands of the French. Prebyzhewski and his corps had laid down their arms. Other columns, after losing half their men, were retreating in disorderly confused masses. The remains of Langeron's and Dokhturov's mingled forces were crowding around the dams and banks of the ponds near the village of August. After five o'clock it was only at the August Dam that a hot cannonade, delivered by the French alone, was still to be heard from numerous batteries, ranged on the slopes of the Pratzen Heights, directed at our retreating forces. In the rearguard, Dokhturov and others, rallying some battalions, kept up a musketry fire at the French cavalry that was pursuing our troops. It was growing dusk. On the narrow August Dam, where for so many years the old miller had been accustomed to sit in his tasseled cap, peacefully angling, while his grandson, with shirt-sleeves rolled up, handled the floundering silvery fish in the watering-can, on that dam, over which for so many years Moravians in shaggy caps and blue jackets had peacefully driven their two-horse carts loaded with wheat, and had returned dusty with flour whitening their carts, on that narrow dam, amid the wagons and the cannon, under the horses' hoofs and between the wagon-wheels, men disfigured by fear of death now crowded together, crushing one another, dying, stepping over the dying and killing one another, only to move on a few steps and be killed themselves in the same way. Every ten seconds a cannonball flew, compressing the air around, or a shell burst in the midst of that dense throng, killing some and splashing with blood those near them. Dolokhov, now an officer, wounded in the arm and on foot, with a regimental commander on horseback and some ten men of his company, represented all that was left of that whole regiment. Impelled by the crowd, they had got wedged in at the approach to the dam, and jammed in on all sides, had stopped because a horse in front had fallen under a cannon, and the crowd were dragging it out. A cannonball killed someone behind them, another fell in front and splashed Dolokhov with blood. The crowd, pushing forward desperately, squeezed together, moved a few steps, and again stopped. "'Move on a hundred yards, and we are certainly saved.' Remain here another two minutes, and it is certain death," thought each one. Dolokhov, who was in the midst of the crowd, forced his way to the edge of the dam, throwing two soldiers off their feet, and ran onto the slippery ice that covered the mill-pool. "'Turn this way!' he shouted, jumping over the ice which creaked under him. "'Turn this way!' he shouted to those with the gun. "'It bears!' 
The ice bore him, but it swayed and creaked, and it was plain that it would give way not only under a cannon or a crowd, but very soon even under his weight alone. The men looked at him and pressed to the bank, hesitating to step onto the ice. The general on horseback at the entrance to the dam raised his hand and opened his mouth to address Dolokhov. Suddenly a cannonball hissed so low above the crowd that everyone ducked. It flopped into something moist, and the general fell from his horse in a pool of blood. Nobody gave him a look or thought of raising him. "'Get on to the ice! Over the ice! Go on! Turn! Don't you hear? Go on!' Innumerable voices suddenly shouted after the ball had struck the general, the men themselves not knowing what or why they were shouting. One of the hindmost guns that was going onto the dam turned off onto the ice. Crowds of soldiers from the dam began running onto the frozen pond. The ice gave way under one of the foremost soldiers, and one leg slipped into the water. He tried to right himself, but fell in up to his waist. The nearest soldier shrank back, the gun-driver stopped his horse, but from behind still came the shouts, "'Onto the ice! Why do you stop? Go on! Go on!' and cries of horror were heard in the crowd. The soldiers near the gun waved their arms and beat the horses to make them turn and move on. The horses moved off the bank. The ice, that had held under those on foot, collapsed in a great mass, and some forty men who were on it dashed, some forward and some back, drowning one another. Still the cannonballs continued regularly to whistle and flop onto the ice and into the water, and oftenest of all, among the crowd that covered the dam, the pond, and the bank. End of Book Three, Chapter Eighteen. Book Three, Chapter Nineteen, of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Nineteen. On the Pratzen Heights, where he had fallen with the flagstaff in his hand, lay Prince Andrew Bolkonsky, bleeding profusely and unconsciously uttering a gentle, piteous, and childlike moan. Toward evening he ceased moaning and became quite still. He did not know how long his unconsciousness lasted. Suddenly he again felt that he was alive and suffering from a burning, lacerating pain in his head. Where is it, that lofty sky that I did not know till now but saw to-day? was his first thought. And I did not know this suffering either, he thought. Yes, I did not know anything, anything at all till now. But where am I? He listened and heard the sound of approaching horses and voices speaking French. He opened his eyes. Above him again was the same lofty sky with clouds that had risen and were floating still higher, and between them gleamed blue infinity. He did not turn his head and did not see those who, judging by the sound of hoofs and voices, had ridden up and stopped near him. It was Napoleon, accompanied by two aides-de-camp. Bonaparte, riding over the battlefield, had given final orders to strengthen the batteries firing at the August Dam and was looking at the killed and wounded left on the field. "'Fine men,' remarked Napoleon, looking at a dead Russian grenadier, who, with his face buried in the ground and a blackened nape, 
lay on his stomach with an already stiffened arm flung wide. "'The ammunition for the guns in position is exhausted, Your Majesty,' said an adjutant, who had come from the batteries that were firing at August. "'Have some brought from the reserve,' said Napoleon, and having gone on a few steps, he stopped before Prince Andrew, who lay on his back with the flagstaff that had been dropped beside him. The flag had already been taken by the French as a trophy. "'That's a fine death,' said Napoleon, as he gazed at Bolkonsky. Prince Andrew understood that this was said of him, and that it was Napoleon who said it. He heard the speaker addressed as Sire, but he heard the words as he might have heard the buzzing of a fly. Not only did they not interest him, but he took no notice of them and at once forgot them. His head was burning, he felt himself bleeding to death, and he saw above him the remote, lofty, and everlasting sky. He knew it was Napoleon, his hero, but at that moment Napoleon seemed to him such a small, insignificant creature compared with what was passing now between himself and that lofty, infinite sky with the clouds flying over it. At that moment it meant nothing to him who might be standing over him or what was said of him. He was only glad that people were standing near him, and only wished that they would help him and bring him back to life, which seemed to him so beautiful now that he had to-day learned to understand it so differently. He collected all his strength to stir and utter a sound. He feebly moved his leg and uttered a weak, sickly groan which aroused his own pity. Ah, he is alive, said Napoleon. Lift this young man up and carry him to the dressing station. Having said this, Napoleon rode on to meet Marshal Lannes, who, hat in hand, rode up smiling to the Emperor to congratulate him on the victory. Prince Andrew remembered nothing more. He lost consciousness from the terrible pain of being lifted onto the stretcher, the jolting while being moved, and the probing of his wound at the dressing station. He did not regain consciousness till late in the day, when, with other wounded and captured Russian officers, he was carried to the hospital. During this transfer he felt a little stronger, and was able to look about him and even speak. The first words he heard on coming to his senses were those of a French convoy officer, who said rapidly, "'We must halt here. The Emperor will pass here immediately. It will please him to see these gentlemen prisoners.' There are so many prisoners today, nearly the whole Russian army, that he is probably tired of them," said another officer. All the same, they say this one is the commander of all the Emperor Alexander's guards," said the first one, indicating a Russian officer in the white uniform of the horse guards. Bolkonsky recognized Prince Repnin, whom he had met in Petersburg society. Beside him stood a lad of nineteen also a wounded officer of the horse guards. Bonaparte, having come up at a gallop, stopped his horse. "'Which is the senior?' he asked on seeing the prisoners. They named the colonel Prince Repnin. "'You are the commander of the Emperor Alexander's regiment of horse guards?' asked Napoleon. "'I commanded a squadron,' replied Repnin. "'Your regiment fulfilled its duty honorably,' said Napoleon. The praise of a great commander is a soldier's highest reward," said Repnin. "'I bestow it with pleasure,' said Napoleon. "'And who is that young man beside you?' Prince Repnin named Lieutenant Suktalin. 
After looking at him, Napoleon smiled. "'He's very young to come meddle with us.' "'Youth is no hindrance to courage,' muttered Suktalin in a failing voice. "'A splendid reply,' said Napoleon. "'Young men, you will go far.' Prince Andrew, who had also been brought forward before the Emperor's eyes to complete the show of prisoners, could not fail to attract his attention. Napoleon apparently remembered seeing him on the battlefield, and addressing him again used the epithet young man that was connected in his memory with Prince Andrew. "'Well, and you, young man,' said he, "'how do you feel, mon brave?' Though five minutes before Prince Andrew had been able to say a few words to the soldiers who were carrying him, now, with his eyes fixed straight on Napoleon, he was silent. So insignificant at that moment seemed to him all the interests that engrossed Napoleon, so mean did his hero himself with his paltry vanity and joy in victory appear, compared to the lofty, equitable, and kindly sky which he had seen and understood that he could not answer him. Everything seemed so futile and insignificant in comparison with the stern and solemn train of thought that weakness from loss of blood, suffering, and the nearness of death aroused in him. Looking into Napoleon's eyes, Prince Andrew thought of the insignificance of greatness, the unimportance of life which no one could understand, and the still greater unimportance of death, the meaning of which no one alive could understand or explain. The Emperor, without waiting for an answer, turned away and said to one of the officers as he went, "'Have these gentlemen attended to and taken to my bivouac. Let my doctor, Leray, examine their wounds. Au revoir, Prince Repnin!' And he spurred his horse and galloped away. His face shone with self-satisfaction and pleasure. The soldiers who had carried Prince Andrew had noticed and taken the little gold icon Princess Mary had hung round her brother's neck, but seeing the favor the Emperor showed the prisoners, they now hastened to return the holy image. Prince Andrew did not see how and by whom it was replaced, but the little icon with its thin gold chain suddenly appeared upon his chest outside his uniform. "'It would be good,' thought Prince Andrew, glancing at the icon his sister had hung round his neck with such emotion and reverence. "'It would be good if everything were as clear and simple as it seems to Mary. How good it would be to know where to seek for help in this life, and what to expect after it beyond the grave! How happy and calm I should be if I could now say, Lord, have mercy on me! But to whom should I say that? Either to a power indefinable, incomprehensible, which I not only cannot address, but which I cannot even express in words, the great all, or nothing," said he to himself or to that God who has been sown into this amulet by Mary. There is nothing certain, nothing at all except the unimportance of everything I understand, and the greatness of something incomprehensible but all-important." The stretchers moved on. At every jolt he again felt unendurable pain. His feverishness increased and he grew delirious. Visions of his father, wife, sister, and future son, and the tenderness he had felt the night before the battle, the figure of the insignificant little Napoleon, and above all, this the lofty sky, formed the chief subjects of his delirious fancies. 
the quiet home life and peaceful happiness of Bald Hills presented itself to him. He was already enjoying that happiness when that little Napoleon had suddenly appeared, with his unsympathizing look of short-sighted delight at the misery of others, and doubts and torments had followed, and only the heavens promised peace. Toward morning all these dreams melted and merged into the chaos and darkness of unconsciousness and oblivion, which, in the opinion of Napoleon's doctor Leray, was much more likely to end in death than in convalescence. "'He is a nervous, bilious subject,' said Leray, "'and will not recover.' And Prince Andrew, with others fatally wounded, was left to the care of the inhabitants of the district. End of Book 3, Chapter 19 End of Section 68 The End of War and Peace, Volume 1, by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.